Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everyone. A few things before we get started. This is episode 199, which means it's the last episode before 200. That's a Q&A show. So, if you have any burning or smoldering questions about the podcast or me or whatever, I will answer them. I will answer them by talking into this mic right here that I'm using to talk to you right now. And there are all kinds of different ways that you can ask me questions. Uh, you could go on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. You could go on Twitter. I am at Joe Streckert. You could go on to weirdhistorypodcast.com and use the contact form there. Pelt me with queries and, uh, yeah, I'll answer them. It'll be great. You're probably also wondering about part four of the Iran-Contra series. That is the thrilling conclusion of that particular saga. And the answer is, I'm writing a book right now. That takes up an immense amount of time. It's an immense amount of work, as anyone who's ever written a book can tell you. Uh, my manuscript is due to the publisher on July 1st, and that's my world. And I really want to give that topic the attention it deserves. In fact, I am suspecting that that episode might be going a bit long with the script that I've already written for it. Uh, but yeah, I don't want to just treat that lightly or just gloss over it. I want to get into the weeds with that episode. So the end of Iran-Contra is going to be episode 202. In the meantime, we have today's episode. This episode is about something that I imagine a lot of people don't want to think about. As you can probably tell from my interview with Joshua Specht, author of the really quite excellent Red Meat Republic about the history of the American beef industry, I do eat meat. And like many American omnivores, I'm okay with that, for all kinds of reasons. We are not the only species to eat meat. It is something that happens throughout the natural world. Uh, arguably, eating meat contributed to our primate ancestors having big, squishy human brains, and I'm a fan of those. And also, come on, have you ever really looked at a chicken or a cow? I know many people might claim to feel a certain amount of kinship with them, but I do not have an Emmanuel Levinas-style encounter with the other when I gaze into the eyes of a chicken. That was a really bad forced philosophy joke for all of you ethics as first philosophy fans out there. Anyway, eating animals for sustenance is one thing. There is a whole other field of animal products that I have different and maybe irrational feelings about. When I think about minks... And ermines, cute little weasel creatures that are going to become coats, um, I do get kind of disturbed. You might as well start playing that one Sarah McLaughlin song, because I don't want to think about those cute little fuzzballs getting turned into someone's coat. And yet, humans have been wearing animal products for a long time. Humans have been wearing animal products since there were humans. And... In this episode, I talked to Melissa Kwasny, author of Putting on the Dog, The Animal Origins of What We Wear, and it was an illuminating conversation for a couple of reasons. First, 
I'm a big fan of history books that are about everyday and mundane things. Uh, history is not just political history. It's not just wars. It's not just big stuff. Uh, exploring daily life and how it's changed and what it means is extraordinarily important. And I'll go so far to say that if you are only looking at history as political or military or the rest of it, you know, that like big explodey macho stuff, then I would say that you're like not a great student of history because you also need to think about food and clothes and how people lived and what their houses were like and all of it. That's important. But also, uh, this whole topic was hard for me because, again, thinking about cute little fuzzballs and that Sarah McLaughlin song and engaging with that and talking to somebody who has really explored the leather and feather and fur industries uh, was illuminating, even while it was... And Kwasney, by the way, is not like a big fur apologist. She doesn't wear fur herself, but she dove in and tried to do a good-faith exploration of the history of wearable animal products and what they mean today, and also the ethical and environmental concern about the clothes that we wear now, be they made out of wool or cotton or leather or what have you. So without further ado, here's Melissa Kwasney. All right, Melissa Kwasney, thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you, Joe. I'm very happy to be here. So your new book, Putting on the Dog, uh, how would you sum it up? <laughs> um, it's a very complex topic. Um, I'll start with the title, um, Putting on the Dog. Many people don't know that expression. It's an expression from my grandparents' generation. Um, it means putting on fancy clothes, like putting on the Ritz. And um, the topic of the book, the subtitle is um, The Animal Origins of What We Wear. And so what I do... What I explore in this book uh, are the origins of our clothing through six different materials, leather, wool, silk, feathers, pearls, and fur. And um, I devote a chapter to each of those. They're materials that animals have provided uh, human beings. I look at the history of the of the processes uh, tell stories about the animals and um, explore some of the issues uh, contemporary issues environmental issues of using these materials um, also ethical issues um, what's different in this book because each one of these materials obviously would warrant a whole encyclopedia, um, say, for instance, about silk. Uh, in addition to the research I did for each of these, I made it a point to travel to a, at least one place for each of these materials, where the animals were and where the people who raise or hunt or um, trap them are, and talk to them about some of the processes in making these materials. Yeah, so I wanted to uh, ask you about each material and also about uh, your experiences with travel. Uh, in the first chapter, leather, where did, where did that end up taking you? Uh, I started with the first chapter uh, researching what are the origins of human clothing. And 
the first clothing was probably made out of plants um, and 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 somewhat animal skins, but we don't have any evidence of that because, of course, those materials rot and go away. So archaeological evidence is restricted to finding the tools, the stone tools that people use to make clothing. We find that around 100,000 years ago in the awls and needles, eyed needles that are found all over the northern part of of the globe. Uh, so I started with investigating that. Um, an interesting thing about it is that clothing, complex clothing, which is clothing that is made to fit around our bodies, most likely came from the skins of animals. Uh, so when I was researching this, I just happened to have an invitation from a friend of mine to go stay in a village in uh, on the tundra of Alaska, uh, an Alaska native village, a Yupit uh, village. And those people, one thing about complex clothing is that archaeologists say that that technology enabled us to expand into harsh re harsh climates and um and regions all over the globe so clothing actually being a res uh, responsible for human uh occupation and so the yupik people are renowned for their skin sewing um, so-called sewing clothing made out of the skins of animals and it is still part of their subsistence culture. So I was very happy to be invited there. And I spent a couple of weeks um, in a village um, called Kasiglik on the Kuskokwim River um, on the tundra and saw marvelous um, examples of this kind of clothing. And what would their what would their leather craft what would their leather craft, excuse me, look like um, when you were there observing it? Uh, what did you see? What did their tools look like? How did they sew things? Uh, what was the finished product like? Okay, there's so many different examples of this ingenious clothing. Um, a lot of people, most people I met still had examples of it that their mothers made, their grandmothers made, and sometimes still wore them, even though, of course, people can buy uh, ready-made products now. But for instance, the fancy parkas that people wear that that really are so warm that people only wear them at in the very coldest times anymore um, because, of course, of global warming. Uh, but, but those are made out of the skins of muskrats, for instance, or of the Arctic squirrel. They say that it took 32 muskrat skins to make one of these fancy parkas, and they're quite beautiful. They would have a ruff around the hood that was made out of wolf hair, because wolf has this ability to wick frost away from the face. And so each one was very, each material was very considered for the function that it was made for um any idea how far back those techniques go so if somebody uh today were to travel to where you went and observe those techniques um are they representative of something that you would see like you know decades or centuries before now or have those techniques uh evolved there over time 
I'm sure they've evolved, but the the basic idea of of sewing um, skins with an awl um, and needle uh, using, for instance, seal skin for boots or salmon skin for boots, um, which incidentally has translated down to modern times to be the the muckluck, for, right? Mm-hmm. Or the anorak is close to the fancy parka. So, um, so these are originally um, great inventions that probably go back, like uh, in certainly in the area of Siberia in in Arctic places, for for probably fifty thousand years. That's a bit. So um, with your wool section, uh, where did you end up going with that one? Okay, for wool, uh, I live in Montana. And uh, along the Continental Divide here, there are many large sheep ranches. So I was able to go to um, I was able to go to shearing. And um, an interesting side note to that is that those kind of agricultural skill sets or clothing making skill sets are are rapidly disappearing of course because of industrialization Um, in montana and the west approximately 1500 peruvian shepherds and shears come to the come to the U.S. um, every year, and because they have inherited those skills from the Basques who um, colonized Peru. So uh, on any ranch, you can probably find a Peruvian man who is very, is is a master at shearing wool, for instance. Um, Also for lambing, I went to a number of ranches and watched the lambing, which is quite adorable, of course, um, but also requires skill and attention. How far back does wool use go um, in terms of, well, humanity? Uh, Any idea on when, you know, the first, on when the first human to shear a sheep was and where? The first domesticated um, sheep Hap- that happened around the um, the Middle East, of course, and um, where most domestication of plants and animals happened. Um, we're looking at 10,000 years ago. Um, sheep breeds, it's interesting, there are probably 500 different sheep breeds in the world today. And um, they started out, of course, as wild sheep. And then, of course, there's wild goats. Most people don't know that cashmere is actually made out of the um, underbelly hair of a goat. Um, Those animals were initially wild. And then over many many years, um, thousands of years in some cases, of breeding, we have now the the animals that have perfectly fine uh, coats like merino wool um, that that we can use for our clothing. Where before, um, in in the beginning, women would actually collect the tufts of wool that would be caught on trees or um, on limbs, and then weave uh, spin and weave those into clothing. Okay, so you're talking about how uh, people would find bits of wool kind of incidentally and turn that into wool, and then that would eventually become 
uh, people breeding sheep and shearing sheep for their wool specifically. There was that kind of shift that happened. Absolutely. And that's how most domestication kind of happens. Um, biologists call that mutualism, where um, one species is is helping the other species to thrive. So in that case, the sheep would um, be more protected to be around uh, human beings, and human beings, of course, would be more protected wearing the wool of sheep. Yeah. Um, in what ways have sheep changed in their relationship with us? If I were to go back to the Middle East thousands of years ago and find a proto-sheep, um, how would it be different from a modern one? Like, would a modern person recognize it as such? Or have we changed them to the point where uh, it's almost a completely different animal? They... In, as in most domesticated animals, you would recognize them, of course, that a sheep would look like a sheep. Okay. Uh, but um, there would be differences in behavior and there would be differences in the quality of the material that they're providing. For instance, in sheep, they have been bred for so long for a very, very soft, dense wool um, that that we like um, and and that often comes in, they've been bred for a certain color. White is the most uh, favored color. They would also be uh, less wild. Um, uh, There's a concept called neoteny where Mm -hmm. animals are bred for their more uh, childlike qualities. And so so they will be um, less dangerous, of course. They would want to stay in one place, like sheep Sheep like to be um, in one place, and they also would uh, cluster more. Yeah, I think with Neoteny, uh, a lot of people might be familiar with that famous um, Siberian fox experiment, where... Um, they took different generations of foxes, bred them for docility, and found that the ones they kept selectively breeding for docility retained puppy qual- puppy-like qualities. Like that—that's that's the one you're referring to, like right? Kind of it's the yeah. it's the same with our dogs. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That we that we like certain qualities. We like a we like a cute face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I want to. Uh, I don't want to. I want to keep moving on because you cover so much in the book. Um, when people think of domestic animals, and I think particularly people in the Western world, they think of, you know, cows and chickens and pigs and sheep and horses and the rest of it. But when one of the biggest revolutions in domestication worldwide was the silkworm, and you talk about silk in the book as well. So, right. yeah. How, what was your experience there? What did you find? Well, that's a fascinating history. Like, like most people, when I started this project, I didn't think very much about my clothing, where it came from. And silk is such a beautiful, luxurious product that I don't think very many people think that it is made from the spit of worms, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so learning about that, the the, the domestication of it, the moth is the wild moth, originally from China, that's called the Bombex Mori. And it has been bred for so many, so many thousands of years. It originated in China, of course, um, transported to Japan. Um, 
and it can it has to be fed by hand anymore it eats exclusively mulberry mulberry leaves but um it has been bred so that it can't really fly anymore to fly to those trees so it depends on us right right it has it has been thoroughly domesticated to the point where it can't actually exist in the wild right yeah so um with silk yeah i think it's i think it's fascinating that so many people don't um think about where it comes from uh i've actually been to a silk factory in china and i knew that silk came out of worms but until i actually saw it happening in real life i never really connected to do things and i thought this is a far more visceral process um than i ever thought it was and i think that's the and, case and it's an amazing process that human beings have come up with this technology um mm-hmm. most people know they learn in grade school about the cycle of me- metamorphosis that butterflies and moths go through um so the the, the mo- we start out with the moth the moth lays eggs um in in the breeding of in the making of silk those those moths lay the eggs on paper now so that that people can find them right so then the egg turns into a worm and there are many different stages um, called instars that the worms grow into one of the sericulture farms uh, which is what silkworm breeding is called uh, sericulture. One of the sericulture farms I visited had 45,000 worms and they're just eating truckloads of mulberry leaves. And they finally uh, get to a point where they start spinning their cocoon. And of 100,000 insects that spin cocoons, the silkworm, the Bombex mori, is the only one that spins it out of silk. And so then it spins its cocoon and it becomes a pupa, which eventually will eat out of the cocoon and become a moth again. So there is the cycle. Well, the trick is that the the pupa has to be killed before it eats out of the cocoon or it cuts the thread. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's that's um, part of the process, too, is quick killing the um the pupa in the cocoon so that you can unravel all that silk which in an average cocoon is about half a mile wow that's a bit yeah (laughs) i mean speaking of luxury products that come from um you know small and maybe kind of like i don't want to say gross but strange animals uh we also have pearls um which uh, are the result of irritation inside mollusks. Right, right. Um, Basically, a pearl, uh, it it is kind of gross. Basically, a a pearl is a cyst that is formed around an irritant, like a grain of sand, that has been lodged in the genitalia of the oyster. (laughs) (laughs) So... um, so think of silkworms as being something a little off-putting. But um, I had the chapter on pearls because I wanted to discuss also other functions of clothing besides that of shelter and protection, and that's adornment. Uh, yeah, you talk about adornment. You also talk about, um, a couple of times during the book, 
um, kind of a symbolic sort of interaction between humans and animals, feeling closer to closer to animals, maybe if you are wearing part of them. Right. There, there's, there's the part about feeling that you are closer to the animals that have provided you clothing. That certainly is an idea in, in indigenous cultures. But, um, but it's also that I think human beings have from the beginning envied the beauty of animals, the beauty of feathers. For instance, um, every culture has, uh, articles of clothing that are made from colorful feathers. Uh, there's, there's the pearl, of course, which is just a, a beautiful thing, just luminescent. And, um, and fur, of course, the different colors and patterns of fur. So um, most anthropologists think that the origins of clothing really started with our love of beauty and adornment and that we saw in animals. And then, um, and then when we moved into harsher climates, of course, envying their ability to stay dry and warm. That really surprised me because um, this is not something that I've like researched or thought about very much, but I just sort of assumed, well, a human was cold. And so they found a, I don't know, bear or whatever and took their skin and wore it and they weren't cold anymore but you're saying that that's not how that's not how it probably worked it probably was for aesthetic purposes first and utilitarian purposes later that's that's we we can't say for sure right that's what um that's what people speculate because there are there is evidence of um of jewelry making for instance that is much older than um, evidence of, say, making um, parkas. But that that also is a function of that, as far as we know now, human beings evolved in, in a mild climate where we didn't need furs. Right. I want to get to furs, but we still haven't talked about um, feathers yet. Um, what did you find on your feather-based explorations? Okay, so feathers, most people think, um, I would talk to my friends about, um, well, I'm writing about feathers used in clothing right now. And mm -hmm. people would think of ostrich feathers, right, in the hat trade. And, um, or they would, they would think of um, the egret, the how Audubon was started by protecting the egrets, which were used in uh, hats all over Europe in America, um, and they would be wearing a down jacket, um, but it, they wouldn't make that connection. So, um, in that in that chapter on feathers, I I focus on a lot of different uses of feathers, um, including including egret and ostrich, uh, and eagle feathers used in ceremonial. Uh, functions here in Montana on, with Plains Indians. But down is actually made, um, it, an interesting part of um, the story of down is that most down is made of duck feathers and is actually a byproduct of meat consumption, especially in China. I don't think a lot of people um, probably make that connection when they get a down jacket, if they even you know, give a thought to the down jacket actually being made out of an animal. Right. It's true. Um, I went um, to visit a down factory in L.A. that uh, they they make 
they supply down for most of the high end, like North Face or um, those kind of places, high end um, down jackets. And they are able to actually trace their down uh, to the village where the, where the bird was actually raised. Um, a funny thing that a lot of people think, well, do they just shoot the geese out of the air? And, um, <laughs> the, I've had people ask me that. And, and the fact is wild geese or wild ducks aren't used in the making of down. It's um, domesticated farm animals that are actually raised uh, for food. In China, many, many people eat duck and there are many, many uh, duck farms. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't attest that Peking duck is delicious um but you saved <laughs> it's it's great it's like a greasy bird pancake um so uh-huh. it's it's funny it isn't it isn't popular here in america we like chicken and that doesn't make very good um feathers for coats uh-huh. so you saved a big one for last and i think this is something that a lot of listeners are probably um thinking about getting to and that's fur and fur also opens the door to um the ethical implications of using animal for clothes using animals for clothing and also the environmental uh questions that it raises so in your explorations of fur wearing fur in the fur industry um what conclusions if any did you come to Okay. I saved the fur chapter for the very last because I knew it would be the most controversial. Certainly, the issue was the most controversial in my mind. Um, I went to Denmark because I had heard the largest international fur auction was held at Copenhagen Fur in in Copenhagen. And uh, And I, of course, had done a lot of research before I went, and I wrote the company and asked them if I could attend their auction. And they were so wary of people um, having ethical considerations and um, and often uninformed ethical considerations about their industry that I actually had to audition to be invited there. And by that, I mean, I had to send my chapter on leather there before they would even let me come. Wow. Um, Because uh, animal rights organizations have infiltrated lots of mink farms. Denmark is the leading uh, exporter of mink. Uh, in the world, they, there's probably 1,500 mink farms. Um, most most of the mink that is used, made into garments, in the world is farmed mink, um, domesticated mink. And so I went to a mink farm uh, on the coast of the um, the western coast of Denmark and stayed with some mink farmers and got to see that. It's a very complex issue. I think the use of any animals is complex. With fur, we often make the distinction that it's okay to use materials if they're byproducts of meat, like feathers or leather, mm-hmm. um, even wool, but that it's not okay to kill animals just for our clothing. And I find that a very interesting issue. What is something about the fur industry that a lot of people maybe don't know? Maybe something that you found out during um, during your research? Uh-huh. I think 
one thing that people don't know is that in the case of mink anyway, that these are domesticated animals. Uh, I went into a into the barn where the minks were being raised. Um, there were probably in one barn, there were 2,200 of them. And they were all white mink, one pregnant uh, female to a cage. They were waiting um, for the baby mink to be born. And, uh, and the owner opened up one of the cages and the mink did not scurry out. <laughs> um, one thing that has happened with with the with the fur wars is that people have gone undercover into some of these farms and released all the mink and in, into the wild and i'm i'm the kind of person i see an animal on a cage and my my heart breaks <laughs> uh like like many people's um but those mink that were released into the wild didn't really know how to survive on their own. So many of them ended up eating each other. Many of them end up uh, destroying the ecology of, of, the, of the environment of the area where they are because they'll, they'll go after anything, all the waterfowl, all the, um, all the songbirds, anything that they can catch. So it's, a, uh, so it's an interesting um, dilemma. Uh, while writing this book, how did the project change um, maybe your outlook as maybe a consumer or appreciator of clothing? Uh, was there any way in which it made you more sort of like thought for, thoughtful or mindful about the product? Absolutely. I um, I spent five years writing this book. Um, I, I did a tremendous amount of research, but probably the most important thing I learned, things that I learned was in engaging with the people who work with these animals, who raise them and, and hunt them, etc. What I, uh, what I learned is that, that all these issues are very complex, that it's hard to reduce them to black and white. Um, for instance, um, one might think that fur is an atrocity or that leather is an atrocity. And and say, I'm never going to wear anything made out of an animal again. Um, so what is your alternative? It's synthetics. It's, pet it's, it's clothing made of petrochemicals. Um, possibly, um, it's true, we can avoid killing anything by using that. But then we also have, we, we see the problem with those synthetic clothing uh, being washed, all the micro um, pellets that come in each washing and go into our water uh, waterways and end up in the ocean. Uh, much of the plastic pollution that is in the ocean today is due to our clothing. So in answer to your question, of course, I went through every article I have in my closet. <laughs> I look at where it's made. Um, almost, if you do this, you probably find that most of your clothing is made um, in China or in other countries in Asia. Um, I, I looked at what was synthetic, what was made, what was made out of um, animal products. Uh, cotton is a great product, but it, it also comes with its own problems. Uh, it, it uses tremendous amounts of 
water, and tremendous amounts of pesticides, which is bad for the people growing it, as well as, of course, the soil. Um, so these aren't easy. What my best answer, um, and and my purpose in writing this book is to give people information because we can change things most directly, at least in this culture, in the way that we consume products. And so I really think about whether I need something or not before I buy something new. Uh, there are lots of people working on this issue, um, people who are working with ideas of what we call slow fashion, just as people talked about slow food, um, being aware of where our products come from, making good consumer choices, um, and probably biggest of all, not wasting. It's a, um, I learned that in America, people probably throw away three out of five new articles of clothing that they buy every year. Um, our landfills are full of them. Our, certainly our secondhand stores are full of them, which is good for those of us who don't want to um, support that kind of consumerism. Um, but to cherish our clothing, to really look at it, to mend it, to take care of it, to thank thank the animals that give it to us. Uh, yeah, I think that the issue of, um, I, I'll admit that I'm somebody, even though I eat meat and I wear leather, um, the idea of fur uh, viscerally squicks me out. And oftentimes wearing animal products, I think is a little unsettling. But then I think about, well, what's a better alternative? Um, are synthetics better than leather? Is wearing something made out of oil more responsible than wearing something made out of an animal. And I think that's an important issue to grapple with. Also like, that's yeah, right. so much of our landfills are, are made of like old clothes, which is just an astounding thing to learn. Isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? I had never thought about it before, but uh, where, where else would it go? Um, much of our clothing is not biodegradable. Uh, and I too, I, I don't wear fur, but I see that the issue is more complex than I thought. Is there anything that we haven't touched upon yet that you would like to speak to? I would like to say that the that in my experience, the people who work most closely with the animals are actually the people who have a stake in how healthy the land and the water and the animals are around them. And that was something that was kind of astounding to me. And uh, because even though we all have ethical responses to things, um, these are the people who actually know what's going on and, um, and care. And so a lot of the places I went, I met people who are not oblivious to these issues and are actually working hard to find different alternatives. Um, for instance, uh, people who are working with predator-friendly ranching so that instead of killing all the coyotes who, come, who threaten their sheep or their calves, um, they actually find different ways to keep the coyotes away. Um, people, I visited a pearl farm in the Sea of Cortez um, 
in Guaymas, Mexico. And they have actually, by having this pearl farm, many, many of the uh, pearl oysters that they grow are, uh, are not used. So it repopulated the Sea of Cortez, which at one time was completely devastated of pearl oysters because of the greed of the Spanish. Um, those, that sea is now being repopulated with wild oysters. So there's really a lot of good news there and a lot of good people thinking good thoughts. Well, the book is Putting on the Dog. Where can people find it? Um, they they can find it at any independent bookstore. Um, they can go to Trinity University Press, tupress.org, um, or anywhere that they order their books. Excellent. Melissa Kwasny, thank you very much for talking with us today. Thank you. That was wonderful. Once again, thank you to our guest, Melissa Kwasny. And folks, episode 200 is coming up. Get me your questions. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Fill out the contact form. Go on Twitter. I am at Joe Streckert, at J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T. Bug me on Twitter. Send me questions there. Go to Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. So many ways that you can ask questions. Go on Apple Podcast or your podcatcher of choice. Give us stars and ratings and all that. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.